So our text this morning is Joel chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. Joel chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the eastern sea. His rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For He has given the early rains for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Since our reading, this is the Word of God, we bless and thank Him for it. So let's ask His blessing now in word of prayer. Grant us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand and believe what You have written to us in this text today, O Lord. We confess that we are at times... Hard of heart and mind, obstinate, failing to see what you have plainly put before us. And so we pray that you would give us your spirit to illuminate this word for us today. Shine a light upon this text, that this text might shine a light upon our life. That you might lead us through your word, through your spirit who works in the word. And we pray that we would be moved, O Lord, by to testimony, as we find it here in this text, to your gracious, kind character, which you showed your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Then the Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people. It's with these words that we get the first hint of resolution in the book of Job. This is the first time in the book when it appears that there might be a little sunshine after all the rain. Here we might say that law gives way to gospel as undeserved good news is delivered to the sinful people of God. This is, I think, most evident when we remind ourselves of the material which we have covered in this book up to this point. In the first chapter of this book, the prophet Joel 
interpreted a locust plague which Judah was suffering under as a covenant judgment from the Lord requiring repentance. And then, in the first half of chapter 2, Judah's resulting woe was compounded by the announcement of a greater judgment to come upon those who remain unrepentant on the great and awesome day of the Lord. And in response, what did, what did Joel do? Well, he called the people to repent so that God might relent and spare them. But in the portion of the book which we considered last week, the repentance was not yet completed, Judah's prayers were not yet answered, and the future was not yet certain. Yet in the announcement of verse 18, which begins our sermon text this morning, we reach a pivotal transition point in the book as urgent exhortations to repent are followed by glorious promises of resolution. And before we even begin to consider what that resolution looks like in the text that we're considering this morning, I want you to make an observation about the structure of this book which will help you to navigate the two different portions of chapter 2 which we will deal with in our services this morning and this evening. Recognize that in Joel chapter 1, the prophet deals with Judah's immediate problem, the locust judgment. That was something happening then. That was something they could understand. They could see it with their eyes. In Joel chapter 2 verses 1 to 17, which we looked at last week, the prophet deals with a future problem, the the coming day of the Lord, the end times judgment of which the New Testament authors continue to speak. And, And now, in response to these two warning passages... Joel is going to supply two different promises which correspond to the two different problems. So Joel chapter 2 verses 18 to 27 features a promise of restoration in response to the locust judgment. Then, as we'll see tonight, Joel chapter 2 verses 28 to 32 features a promise of the Spirit and salvation from the coming day of the Lord. Therefore, the the promise of restoration in our sermon text this morning is essentially a gracious reversal of the circumstances of chapter 1. That's what we see here in the text today, in God's Word. God is going to roll back the destruction which had taken place at the hands, so to speak, of this great swarm of locusts. And so consequently, we we may today state the point of our passage and our sermon in this way. Because the Lord is gracious towards His covenant people, He shows pity on them, leading to prosperity and ending in praise. I'll say it again. Because the Lord is gracious towards His covenant people. He shows pity on them, leading to prosperity and ending in praise. And first, we consider the pity of the Lord already introduced in verses 18 to 20. And again, we read, The Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people. And please notice right away that this is basically an answer to the prayer which the temple priests were to offer up in verse 17. 
That they were to ask the Lord to spare his people and his heritage, protecting, preserving those things which belonged to him. And now, Yahweh, in our text, demonstrates that he is, in fact, jealous for that which belongs to him. And he does have pity upon his people. He is going to spare. In other words, because they are bound to him by covenant, he sees their weakness and has compassion upon them that they might not be destroyed. And and as we see in verses 19 to 20 of this text, the pity which the Lord feels toward them is not some sort of abstract emotion which is detached from Judah's on-the-ground reality. Instead, the pity which he has for them is exhibited through the reversal and removal of the locust judgment which had caused their immediate suffering. Whereas the locusts had stripped the land bare, the Lord announces now that grain, wine, and oil, all those things which had been taken away, they're they're on their way once more. And it will be enough to satisfy the hungry inhabitants of the land. That the peoples who had previously asked of Judah, where is their God? And they're now silenced because the Lord is going to roll back the reproach of Israel among the nations. They'll no longer be disgraced and ashamed when the day of restoration comes. And and though it might seem obvious, the Lord makes clear in verse 20 that that this will be made possible, this restoration through the, 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 the physical banishment of this locust horde from the land. He says, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Here the, the locust horde, the locust plague, is spoken of in militaristic military terms uh, as, as it is described as the northerner. Why the northerner? Well, uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians would thoroughly demonstrate over the coming years that the proper way to attack the land of Cana was to enter it from the north because the land there is surrounded by water on its eastern and its western borders. This was well known. Therefore, the, 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 the locust here in these verses is metaphorically depicted as a a northern invader that that must be pushed back and driven in to both the Dead Sea in the east and the Mediterranean in the west. And, And the defeat of this swarm will be so decisive that their mass death will cause the smell of their decaying carcasses to fill the land. And that doesn't sound particularly pleasant, but I suppose if uh, everything has been destroyed, then maybe you could conceive of that as a sweet smell, uh, the sweet smell of victory, at least for a time. And, and this was a fitting end for the, the northerner, the one who had done great, or we might translate it monstrous, things among God's people. So the Lord shows pity on Judah by killing the locusts and restoring the land in their absence. But, but before we go on, To consider uh, what this restoration will entail, it is, I think, worth, as we're speaking about the pity 
of the Lord. I think it's worth slowing down and meditating for a moment upon how the pity of the Lord upon his covenant people intersects with our life as Christian believers. Ask ask yourself this question this morning. Do you believe that the Lord graciously pities you as a sinner? Or do you believe that he is hardened towards you, seeking to to work your destruction at every every turn? But basically I'm asking, do do you see him as, as gracious towards you? Or do you see God as as vindictive and vengeful towards you? If you're in Christ Jesus, then it ought to be the former. You see, this text bears witness to the fact that God, despite what some may say when they misinterpret God's word, that God is indeed kind to those whom he loves. Yes, repentance is commanded in Job. That's that's one of the major themes of the book. Repent. But notice, we're not told here that the Lord deals with Judah in some transactional way. Such that they exhibited the right amount of repentance, so he decided to restore them. They gave him what he wanted, and so he'll give them what they want. That's not the picture we're given here. We may assume that Judah's repentance is assumed by this promise of restoration, but in the text, the Lord's pity ends up being the determinative factor for their future in spite of them. The Lord is here making a promise before they have had an opportunity to repent. He will restore. So so brothers and sisters, learn from this proclamation of the Lord's pity. That the Lord indeed, as has already been announced in this book, is indeed gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That was the thing that was supposed to motivate the repentance. And the Lord takes pleasure in, in showing grace to all those who are in covenant with Him through Christ Jesus. And so... This text, even here as we speak about the pity of the Lord towards His people, ought to to beckon us all to come to Christ and learn the kindness and the pity of the Lord. He pities His people for Jesus' sake. So we've seen the Lord's pity. But now let us observe in the second place as we move on that the Lord's pity leads for prosperity. Excuse me, leads to prosperity for Judah. As we saw in previous weeks, the locust judgment was God's covenant judgment placed upon Judah because of its unfaithfulness. And if that covenant judgment is to be removed, then covenant blessing is going to take its place. As Judah comes to know once more the sort of abundance promised to the Lord's chosen and faithful nation. While in verse 20, it was the northern invader who had done great things, now we see sort of a play on words, it is the Lord who does great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. With with the pestilence driven out of the land, now it's the Lord's turn to show His might. And, And this might, as we're going to see, is going to work out to be a great blessing for the inhabitants of the land of Judah, including even the beasts of the field, which had panted for the Lord 
in chapter 1. And now man and beast alike are going to be blessed by the returning pastures, by the return of the fruit-bearing trees, by the abundant yield of the fig and the vine. Furthermore, those who had previously been called to weep and to mourn and to wail are now told to be glad, O children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given... The early rain for your vindication. He's poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the later rain as before. You see, sorrow was to turn to joy. The Lord didn't just wipe out the locusts and say, All right, good luck. No, He was going to pour out the rains upon them that the land might heal and prosper and grow. Certainly for an agrarian society which had been suffering under conditions of locust and drought and, uh, and destruction, uh, the announcement of the rains coming at both ends of the rainy season was the sort of thing which would indeed cause you to rejoice. Their life depended upon this sort of thing, and the Lord said, I'm going to give it to you. And, and, and the result of that scenario would be absolute prosperity. The Lord promised them, verse 24, the threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine, oil. Uh, All those elements which had been lost, bringing celebration to an end, halting worship, destroying the local economy, those things would come back, leading to the the holistic renewal of life in Judah. There, There would indeed be celebration again as the grain offerings and the drink offerings of worship resumed. And as the reformers returned to life as they knew it. And all of this is summed up well in verse 25 as the Lord explains what He's going to do. He says this, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. That, that which had been taken away by the Lord's instrumental army of locusts would be returned by the Lord's gracious hand as Judah experienced prosperity once more. Now, it's, as, as we read promises of prosperity like this in our text, it's worth remembering and considering that texts like this are not proof texts for the prosperity gospel. You probably know from experience that... Following Jesus doesn't get rid of all your problems. Uh, You probably did not move from the poorhouse to the penthouse on the day that you were saved. That's uh, not something that ordinarily happens. So how are we then to think of passages like this in the Old Testament? Well, to get into the weeds a little bit, we're to remember that while we are still under the same covenant of grace that the saints in the Old Testament under, there's only one way of salvation. We are now under a new administration. That's the, that's the language of the confession. We're under a new administration of that covenant of grace. Namely, they were under the old Mosaic covenant, and we're under the new covenant in Christ. Now, both are gracious in many ways. Both are part of one, uh, God's one big plan of redemption, but they're distinct in certain features. And most significantly for our purposes this morning, we must recall that under the Mosaic Covenant, the Lord dealt with His people as a theocratic nation. 
church and state merged, uh, a nation under God's rule. They were his people. He was their God and ruler. Even after the monarchy was instituted, the king ruled for Yahweh's sake. And as part of this deal, they were given a particular plot of land to occupy, being promised blessings in that land on condition of faithfulness, and being warned of curses in that land should they fail. Therefore, the sort of material prosperity promised in our passage is the sort of thing you would expect the Lord to promise to a theocratic nation living in an inherited land under covenant, especially once you've read the book of Deuteronomy. It's all in there. So so, so while the prosperity which Judah was being promised stems, I would say, from the same grace which we have received in Jesus Christ, it took a unique form which was appropriate for the covenantal administration in which Joel was prophesying. By way of contrast, the grace which we receive today primarily yields not physical, uh, material prosperity, but, but spiritual prosperity, given that people of God are now assembled in the church, a spiritual body, rather than in a particular country living under the Mosaic law as a whole. And yet, even as we say that, nevertheless, it's sometimes true, as we'll see later on in this book, that the spiritual blessings bestowed upon the new covenant people, both now and in eternity, are sometimes spoken of in material terms like those in this passage. As the Lord condescends to the understanding of His hearers, speaking in ways that they can understand. We'll get to that a little more later. And I know these distinctions can be tricky to make, but they're at least worth trying to make, recognizing that passages like this one can be misapplied if we don't make them. It would be improper to read verses 21 to 25 in our text and conclude that if you do the right things, God will make you rich and prosperous in this life in a materialistic sense. Rather, we should see that in this case, the Lord is graciously restoring and prospering a repentant Judah in line with the covenantal administration that He established with them in the course of history. And so with that distinction made, we're set up to move then from pity to prosperity to praise. What we find here is that the blessings promised at the restoration of Judah were not intended to be an end in themselves. Even for them, the material was not ultimate. Even then, the material served the spiritual. The the things which they received were to stir the hearts and affections of the people towards God. In verse 26 we read, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. Whereas other portions of the prophetic literature in the Old Testament suggest that plenty and prosperity often caused God's people to forget Him, here we see that clearly such things were meant to have, at least, the opposite effect. These pitied people were to receive gifts from God's hand and recognize in them the giver. Turning to Him thanks and praise for His wondrous work. Simply simply put, grace received 
was supposed to lead to gratitude displayed. Grace received was supposed to to lead to gratitude displayed. And in a very tangible sense, this meant that abundant wine and grain and oil were to lead to abundant offerings and worship. And these these were all tithable items. And they were indeed used, as we've already seen in this book and in the book of Numbers, for that matter. They were all used in the work of the temple. Uh, so, so not only were they to restore the joy of the people as they received these gifts, re- replacing their agony with satisfaction, they, they were also to fuel the worship of Yahweh as a fitting response to a marvelous display of grace. This was especially so given the promise with which this portion of Joel ends. At the end of verse 26 and on into verse 27 we read, And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. See, this is a promise of covenant restoration. The Lord declares to Israel that when they are to be restored, they will again know that He dwells in their midst and that He alone is their God. When the dust settles, uh, the relationship between the people and their covenant Lord will not be found to be permanently severed, but rather strengthened. Strengthened. In fact, the Lord twice promises here that He will never again shame them and we might say that he's never going to, again, shame them over the sins which led to their judgment. I think that's a, a fitting interpretation. But we may also have here uh, maybe the first indication in this portion of the text that the full restoration which Judah needed would not take place until the future, the coming of Christ, when Christ would roll the shame away. So there was a sense in which already in the restoring of the land he was rolling their shame away. Uh, but but the, the final uh, implementation of that would take place at the, the coming of Christ. But either way, we can, I think, say that these grandiose promises were cause for praise either way. And along these same lines, then I ask you, congregation, whether or not your own experience of the Lord's pity in your life has led you to praise. Surely this is the Lord's intention for us as well. As those who have come to know His pity through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why one of the, the most characteristic aspects of the Christian life, as depicted in the New Testament, is the presence of thanksgiving. How many times in the New Testament are we called to give thanks? To do this or to do that with thanksgiving. Paul, if you read Paul's letters, it's Paul seemingly will tack that phrase on anywhere. Do this, do that, and do it with thanksgiving. Everything was to be done in, in the apostles' mind with thanksgiving. As believers are called to give thanks to the Lord for kindness shown and grace received. And to speak of the apostle, um, the apostle Paul makes this connection, I think, for us powerfully. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul there, it's a somewhat memorable passage. Maybe you can recall it to mind. Uh, Paul is reflecting upon the suffering which he and his colleagues had faced as ambassadors for Jesus. 
There he speaks of the fact that they carry, yes, a, a message containing great power, but he says, we carry it around in jars of clay. Being afflicted in seemingly every way. Nevertheless, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he, he says, we press on. And, and why? Well, Paul explains in verses 12 to 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want to read it. Here's what he says. Recognizing all the suffering which they face, the fact that they are pressed down, that they are afflicted in every way, that they carry about in their body the, 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 the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we press on since... We have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak. Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of of God. You see, Paul is here explaining why the afflictions he experiences do not crush him. He is able to roll with the punches, not losing heart, because he truly believes the message that he carries. And believing it, he speaks it confident that he, along with every other Christian, will eventually experience the same resurrection that Christ Himself experienced. And therefore, He tells us, He labors for the sake of the church no matter the cost, knowing that as the grace of God in Jesus Christ extends to more and more people, thanksgiving and glory will abound to God. In a manner similar to Joel, Paul understands that because God is gracious towards sinner, He shows pity in Jesus Christ, leading us to a spiritual prosperity as those who have received a, an inheritance, which ought then to end in our thankful praise to our glorious God. So, congregation, if you, here's your takeaway. If you know His grace, then give Him the glory. If you know His grace, give Him the glory. His pity is meant to lead to praise. And therefore, as we close, let's stand back then and marvel at the promise of restoration in Joel chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. It was a promise given to Judah in response to the calamity which they had experienced, but it mirrors promises made to us. Let's give thanks for the defeat of the locusts. And the restoration of the land, knowing that those events in the life of God's covenant people teach us about the nature of God and His dealings with us. And so, as we close, I say with the words of this text, Praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. In Jesus Christ. Amen. And let us pray.